Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Very pleased to see you uh, here this evening. My name's Anne McElvoy. It's a great honor to be here today at the LSE to welcome you all and to chair this evening's event, which is being hosted by BBC Radio 3 and the LSE's Literary Festival. So we are going to record for broadcast, hence the little bits of fiddling about along the way. It's been hosted in the run-up to this year's LSE Space for Thought Literary Festival, Utopias, which, as many of you will know, starts on Monday, and you can find out any more details about it if it has unaccountably passed you by on the LSE website slash Space for Thought. Um, and because we're recording, of course, we would ask you to switch your mobile phones off or into flight mode, because we'd love to hear from you, but maybe not so much from your phones. Uh, we will need to do a few little retakes and stitches, the invisible stitches of, of radio at the end of the event. So if you wouldn't mind staying seated, we won't keep you long, but it just means that we're able to do that that neatly. If you're using Twitter, and we're very pleased if you do, the hashtag is hashtag LSEprogressive. And the event will be broadcast 10 p.m. on BBC Radio 3 tomorrow, that's Thursday the 18th, of February and as a podcast afterwards. In a moment, I'm going to formally introduce our panel so that the listeners can hear who they are too. But for now, why don't you just practice by giving them a big round of applause. What might the perfect society look like? It's a question that's absorbed political thinkers and many other dreamers for centuries, and it was thoroughly alive back in the early 16th century. Under the changeable rule of Henry VIII, Thomas More, an ambitious political advisor, Thomas More, an ambitious political advisor and envoy to Flanders, sought to establish what utopia might look like. Situated somewhere in the New World, he described a society in which all is rational calm. The residents live in a self-governing, self-controlled society according to strict rules. Roles are strictly defined, but utopians elect a wise prince by secret ballot. All property is held in common, and there's a bias against accumulation of wealth, as stern as it's sometimes comical. Chamber pots are made of gold, and only children may wear jewels to avoid undue accumulation of riches. But utopia also deals with advanced moral questions that preoccupy us today. Whether the death penalty is justified, what about divorce and euthanasia, as well as the principles of statecraft and monarchy. Joining me on stage at the London School of Economics this evening as part of their festival marking the 500th anniversary of Moore's Utopia are my down-to-earth guests. John Guy is Fellow of Clare College, Cambridge, and Justin Champion teaches history at Royal Holloway College in London. Both have written extensively on politics and political thought in the early modern period. And as we seek to turn ideals into reality in our own democratic cultures, we're also joined by two people who combine careers as hands-on politicians with a lively interest in the ideas that underlie the day job. The Labour MP, Gisela Stewart, and Conservative MP and author, Kwasi Kwarteng. Justin, Utopia was published in 1516. Sketch out, if you could, the intellectual background of the time for us. Thank you. Well, I think we need to remember that this grand thing called the Renaissance was going on, 
Um, you know, we could spend probably four or five hours debating precisely what that was. But I think if we think about it as, as two types of movement, first, the discovery, the rediscovery of antiquity, the return ad fontes to sources. So people like Moore, who translates some of the Greek uh, humorist Lucian, um, and his best friend Erasmus are responsible for producing, using the printing press, new editions of classical sources, Cicero, the New Testament, um, a whole range, Epicurus, a whole range of sources. So there is that rediscovery, and that poses a fundamental problem for people like Moore. If these pagans, these heathens, these men who wrote and thought about human perfectibility before Christ are virtuous, where does that leave us now? The second element of humanism, which is absolutely to uh, Moore's purpose, is that the rediscovery of these texts also brought in eloquence, the study of letters, the games you can play with rhetoric, the use of fiction in politics. So there's a dual purpose. And this, this Erasmian humanism was very, very focused on how you could use these ideas from the past to inflect and shape a more perfect contemporary society. John Guy, ideas from the past, immensely powerful as this work comes into being, and ideas of the present or the present then, what, what's the relationship between these two things? Well, of course, in the Renaissance, their idea of progress was to actually rediscover the purity of the classical past. And, and this also applied, of course, above all to the scriptures. Uh, what um, Justin says about the, the onward march of the Renaissance, the Italian Renaissance into, into Northern Europe is absolutely right. But what it does in England, more specifically, is that it actually splits opinion between Roman values and Greek values. And, of course, Thomas More and his great friend Erasmus of Rotterdam, the doyen of the Northern European humanists, are very much on the Greek side. Their, their view is that... So what does it take to be on the Greek side or okay, the Roman side? Okay. The Roman side essentially is about political participation. It's about ambition. It's about the sovereign will of the individual. It's about military glory. It's about a sense of justice in which justice is, is defined as to each their own. The Greek view is about justice and equality in a very, very different sense because to underpin justice and equality... Uh, in, certainly in Thomas More's view, there should be no private property, at least that's the view that he expresses in Utopia. Uh, Erasmus, of course, loved the idea of the Greek philosophers because it seemed that Plato had almost anticipated Christianity. And, of course, the, as, as Raphael Hifflerday says in Book Two of Utopia, one of the things that the Utopians find so attractive about you know, their way of life, uh, but also about Christianity when they finally hear about it, uh, is that, of course, this, the, 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 their way of life mirrors the simple you know, um, life that they, that, they, that they have. Quasi, how much of that resonates now, that desire to link up to past cultures in political thinking? I think there isn't so much, perhaps, the, um, the desire to look you know, directly to the past in the way that the Renaissance did in terms of you know, the veneration for classical culture. But I think there is a utopian spirit, and I think that you, know, you need only look at people like uh, Bernie Sanders in America, I mean, Corbyn, um, you know, his elevation to the leadership of the Labour Party last year, which was completely surprising. Uh, and, you, and if you look at these uh, phenomena, you can see that there is an aspiration. You know, people do 
uh, think about ideas. They do think about abstract uh, notions of equality and um, of justice. And I think that's, you know, these are powerful things in modern politics. I think we'll be digging into that a bit uh, as we go along. But Gisela, I'm quite interested. We often talk about people in politics who we think are looking backwards as being in, in, in some way at fault. We talk about being backward looking and we, we don't mean it in a good way. And yet at this point, as John Guy and Justin have laid out, looking backwards was actually rather elevating. It depends why you're looking backwards. Uh, any political movement has to establish its roots. It has to establish a lineage of credibility and credentials. And therefore, if you want to change anything in the today, you need to establish the provenance of that line of thinking. So you will find the Labour Party will go back to its various leaders. And what, what I find quite interesting is that certainly on the in, in England you start to dis the rediscovery of the Humboldt brothers, uh, which of course in, in the 19th century Germany were the, the great humanist educational principle. Uh, and this discovery of the, 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 the Greeks, which were just because we were feeling uncomfortable with God and the king, so, you know, the people uh, became a very easy alternative. So I think each, each generation goes back into history for its own purposes. John, Guy, tell us a bit about Thomas More himself and where he fits into the, this picture of Renaissance humanism. Well, for Thomas More, it really started around 1499 when he's 21. He's come down from Oxford... While he was at Oxford, he's, he's met one inspirational teacher called William Grosson, who was the, really the, the pioneer of Greek studies in England, and he'd been in Italy. And just by a pure fluke, this man, Grosson, ended up as the parish priest in Moore's own parish in London, St. Lawrence, Jury. In 1499, Moore first meets Erasmus. They become totally infused. Uh, a small network in London starts passionately reading Greek books. Uh, but, of course, Moore is a divided character. It was actually said by contemporaries that this man could always see both sides of the question. Uh, and he's under great pressure. I mean, many people in the audience you know, may recognize this. Great pressure from his father, who's uh, essentially a, a top-notch lawyer, later to become a judge. He's got to enter the legal profession. He's got to make a living. You know, it's all this... Erasmus is a guy who's dangerously over-educated. You know, you don't want to dabble, dabble, dabble with that. Uh, and so Moore is, 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 is divided. He goes off for a two-year sabbatical, in effect, to study books uh, and ideas in the London Charter House. You know, whether or not you think he did that to test his vacation is something not for now. Uh, but he then changes tack and becomes a, a lawyer, a very successful lawyer. So successful that by 1512, he's the link man between the city of London, where he has a very important job as the under-sheriff of London, one of the chief legal officers. He has a job running errands between the city of London and the royal court. Uh, and he is, his talent is recognised at, at court. That's why, in 1515, he's sent on this embassy as a commercial as a commercial advisor, a commercial lawyer, a commercial expert, along with the professional diplomats to renegotiate some treaties with uh, the Gandhian dominions, with the, the Low Countries, essentially about the cloth trade. 
Uh, but after that, he comes back. He's offered a job at court. Is he going to take it? He's not sure. He waits two years. He then takes it. He becomes Henry VIII's secretary. Very few people know. Everyone knows that Thomas More became Lord Chancellor in 1529. Very few people know that he was Henry VIII's secretary between 1518 uh, and, and, and when he became Lord Chancellor. And he was the man who saw Henry 24-7. So, you know, if anybody has... As a, they didn't say at the court insight, of Henry VIII. Yeah, <laughs> if anybody has an insight into the mind of Henry VIII, it's Thomas More. Justin, what do you make of his character? Just that very brief, useful outline there. That doesn't happen without a certain amount of ambition, drive, guile, maybe? No, I, and I think More, if we only come to More through Utopia, we've got a profoundly complicated uh, individual who is capable of taking different perspectives on the same question. And it's almost impossible, reading Utopia, to decide what Moore actually thinks. There is a Moore in the dialogue. Is it our Thomas Moore? This Heithlerday, this sort of fictional figure who comes from afar, is that Moore? Who knows? And I, th I think what Moore is doing is, in some sense, channeling the problems of, of Greek philosophy, and in particular of Plato. You know, Plato and more rehearses it, says, if, if you're a deep thinker, if you're a philosopher and it's raining outside, how many times do you have to tell people to not go out in the rain, otherwise they get wet? Or do you go out and get wet yourself? So it's exactly that problem. You know, in Plato's Republic, the person who's seen the truth comes back to the netherworld and informs everybody and, of course, is regarded as an unhelpful lunatic. For more, that's the fundamental problem of politics. You know, what do we do? Do we get involved or do we stay in our nice little garden and think about things? An unhelpful lunatic. Well, that's never been said about any politician at Westminster these days, has it, Quasi? <laughs> uh, do, you, do you follow that, I think, at least that basic idea that there is a tension in how to do politics and political thought? I think there is a tension. I mean, one of the things I was reviewing, looking at um, you know, Dictionary of National Biography, look, other things about more, what struck me was I was very surprised to discover that he was, he was actually a member of parliament as early as 1504, so when he was about 26. And Gisler can back me up perhaps, but you don't get into the House of Commons by accident. Even in 1504, <laughs> I don't think it, it, this was some sort of random occurrence. So I think that you know, he was probably uh, a little bit more ambitious than, than people often give credence. Um, you don't emerge as an MP in your mid-20s and then the other um, highly successful and prominent roles that he, he played, uh, that John described, um, purely by accident. Though it is fair to say that uh, at that time you tended to be nominated by the city and, right. and, and you, you weren't elected in the, in no, the, no, the, the, course, the modern sense. Uh, and I mean, and there, there are a, a couple of occasions when Moore sits as an MP where actually he sat set when somebody who'd been elected had died. Sure. But he was pretty in the, uh, the, the but the point was that he was in the mix. I mean, the people who could be who could be nominated. I entirely agree. But uh, Gisler, when you look at this, I like to think that you put your feet up at a, after a hard day at Westminster or Lord Committee by reading Thomas More. Uh, do you think? Well, I, I see in this questions or attitudes or dispositions in politics that resonate so many years on. You know, looking at five centuries difference, but still, that still speak to you as a politician. There are some things in there. I, I have to say, though, if you told Thomas More that 500 years on, that is the thing he'd be most remembered for, I think he'd be utterly surprised. Uh, because, you know, even he isn't terribly clear. Is, is this some kind of parallel universe, or is this the future, or is it just of what could be? I think the thing about me as a politician is, yes, you know, I do put up my feet and dream. 
But what then makes the difference between the dreamer and the philosopher and the politician is that you feel you have a responsibility to try and put those dreams into practice. And if you end up with dreams which are unattainable, then you make promises which can't be kept. So the, the, the everyday politician is kind of halfway dreamer and halfway pragmatist. And you know, Anne, I sometimes compare it with a magnet and metal files. So you know, you've got to be a step ahead of the rest. But if you're so far ahead that those metal files aren't falling in behind you, you've lost them, and you're out there on your own. Uh, so you've always got to judge that distance between the, the ambition, the dream, and reality. And Justin, 1516, what do you think is prompting Thomas More to write exactly this book in particular at that time? I, th I think classically the, the context is his friendship with Erasmus. Of course, he, he starts this text in Antwerp when he's on a diplomatic mission. And, you know, if Moore was proud, I think he would still be proud of Utopia. You know, he, he was an international figure. Utopia was written in Latin. It, it's very clever. The Yale edition of Moore's Utopia, slender book in our nice new paperbacks, is about three inches thick because we can't recognize all the allusions to the, the ancient sources. So I, I think there was a moment when Moore saw an opportunity. Of course, we're still not quite sure which bits were written where. My, my sense of, of you know, re re replying perhaps to what was just said is that Moore is asking questions about questions. If we're going to be politicians, what sort of questions do we need to address? What is the nature of human happiness is for him a far more pertinent question on, than you know, how do we become a powerful or glorious state. And we always forget you know, who is Moore's nemesis. He's sitting there starting to write his own text, Nicholas Machiavelli, who is the arch theorist of pragmatism. You know, lie if you need to, use might if you need to, just get on with it and crush your opposition. I promise you a longer discussion about Machiavelli and his relationship with Moore in just a moment, but if I could just get John to, to tell us to his mind, I mean, having read all the scholarship, written quite a lot of the scholarship on, on this period, what do you think makes him choose this form, this kind of book, and this message right then? Okay, well, 15, he wrote the book in 1515 and 1516, and it was published towards the end of 1516. The best, the best guess that we have, we know that he wrote the second part, which is essentially the description of the Isle of Utopia, as told through the eyes of this fictional sea captain, uh, Raphael Hithlidaeus. And of course, Hithlidae or Hithlidaeus in Greek means purveyor of nonsense. So the clues here are already being, being laid down. He sort wrote, of like the phantom toll booth, yeah, isn't exactly, it? Giving exactly, you exactly. Clues. Well, Hithlidaeus has much of the texture and the complexion of folly in Erasmus's praise of folly of 1511. Uh, 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 the book, uh, it, was, it was written in Antwerp while more, he was a diplomat on this mission. The, the main diplomats, uh, the, the career diplomats have been summoned to Brussels. Moore's left, you know, essentially in his hotel room for six weeks with nothing to do. So he goes off and sees his humanist friends, notably Peter Gillis, and they sit in, essentially in a garden together uh, and they dream up, uh, they dream up this fable. Uh, but then, of course, uh, Moore, he comes back. But something happens, something really important happens uh, at the end of 1515. Erasmus, Moore's hero, 
the man that he idolizes, the man who is just about to publish the Greek New Testament, the most important book that was probably ever written in the 16th century, uh, translating um, the, the, the New Testament from the original Greek and rejecting all the errors and misunderstandings of, of the Vulgate edition. This is also puts a time bomb under the church, uh, and of course it paves the way for much of the, um, of the controversy of, of, of the Reformation. But at this moment, uh, Erasmus is attacked and asked not to publish the Greek New Testament. His praise of folly is rubbished by uh, essentially a Black Street academic um, called Martin Dorp uh, at the University of Leuven. But more he replies to this, he, does, you know, he doesn't let Erasmus do his own polemic, he replies to this thing in 18,000 words, and he gets dead serious, because now utopia has not to be just a fable, it has to be, if you like, the equivalent of the praise of wisdom, uh, and that, I, I think, is why he then came back and wrote the full part of book one because what the book then turns into is not just, if you like, a defense, a eulogy of Greek values. It becomes, uh, if you like, a, a text of political thought about how to remedy the defect of monarchy, which, which, which is uh, that the counselors of the prince should be both wise men and active citizens. I thought it's a good time to dig into what actually happens uh, between the covers of the book uh, Justin, would you like to sketch out for us what the shape of utopia is? So, so the, the book itself is written in two parts. The first part is a sort of dialogue set in 16th century England over the nature of what a philosopher should do. But also, and, and sometimes again, we, we forget the details, a, a very radical critique of that society, a society where, as Moore puts it, sheep eat men. You know, people are more concerned about the, the cultivation of their sheep than the people who are starving. And all the way through that first part of the book, there is a d discussion. What should a philosopher do? Should we get stuck in and try and change it? Should we counsel the king in a wise way? Um, you know, wh what can we do about this fundamental social inequality? And there's a critique of private property and of pride. That's the serpent that lurks in everybody's heart. Book two is this sort of fabulous story that Heitler Day brings back, very, very detailed, mm -hmm. of Utopus, a place called Nowhere. You know, that's meant to be funny, ha-ha, bom-bom. Um, com complete with map, dimensions, and you know, we can see in the way he describes every little element um, a sort of Aristotelianism. You know, Aristotle in the politics says, you know, you need your best cities to be close to the water but also near the mountains all of these things are replicated so it's a very detailed description of both utopian geography utopian topography you know how the cities work which way do the doors swing you know do, do, does your bathroom have a, a lock on it certainly not all, be, all the best families don't have locks in their bathrooms apparently um, th there's a lot of satire in, in book one, the church and the lawyers take a real kicking. You know, fat friars, not, not some of Moore's most popular people. In Utopia, religion is very, very slim, very slender. There, there are only a few doctrinal things. You have to perhaps believe in the immortality of the soul and perhaps in a providential God, but not much more. There's a lot of humor. But if this is so playful, question to 
Anyone who'd like, like to pitch in on this? I'm, John's uh, just looking at me at the moment. Should we take <laughs> it seriously? Is it, is it purely a, a playful device? And how do we know the difference? How do we know when he's being serious? I, I, don't, I, think, I think this book is actually deadly serious. Uh, the question is how to read how more than thought it was going to be put into practice. The reason I think I've changed my... If, if you've read my books written more than 15 years ago, you'll know that I've actually changed my... my no, I was going to point that out. When I first wrote on more, when I was you know, young, juvenile, uh, <laughs> and, and so on, I actually believed that the real Thomas More was the Thomas Morris of book one. Uh, the guy who essentially takes the Ciceronian position that, that you should enter po- you should enter politics uh, in order to make bad better, uh, in order to, to 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 mitigate the danger in monarchy that tyranny might present. Uh, he quotes Cicero word for word: uh, "Don't abandon the ship in a storm because you can't control the winds. What you need is not an academic philosophy that basically just barges in, you know, and tries to get everything done all in one day. Uh, what you need is a practical philosophy that basically is measured, knows how to speak at the right time, like an actor coming on the stage to say his lines exactly at the right moment. Now, of course." Thomas More is a divided consciousness, and, and that, 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 that element is always there, and it's that part of him uh, that, 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 that is Ciceronian that is actually driving him to actually go into the royal court and try and you know, make bad better, and particularly after Henry VIII's first divorce arises. Uh, but, he, but, but, but I believe that he's also hiff the deus, and the reason I now think that is if you read... In 1519, More and Erasmus were attacked again for their Greek ideals, uh, by uh, basically a, 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 a sort of second-class, um, second-division monk at the Charterhouse called um, John, John Batmanson. You know, his name really doesn't matter, but he attacked the whole Greek project again, and more came back. And the, in the middle of this letter is, is, is a really telling passage in which more makes it absolutely clear that his belief in Greek values of justice and equality, but in particular that society should be run by wise men. That is to say that, in his language, that virtue should be in accordance with, just to live in accordance with nature, which means in accordance with reason, which essentially means that you're governed by wise men uh, who have the moral superiority. uh, And that is a very, very structured society. It's essentially, you know, we're all going to be ruled by essentially technocrats or brilliant men from Brussels, you know, rather than actually having the the sovereign will. I was going to say, that's (laughs) beginning to to sound somewhat familiar, but Quasi, you you wanted to come in. I've never actually attended um, John's lectures at Cambridge, which I'm very pleased that I, I am doing so now, it would appear. Um, You're catching I mean, I, up. I'm, I'm just, I, the, the interesting, I, I agree with a lot of um, what he's saying, but you've got to actually look at an author's output and the times in which he comes up with the books. And what strikes me about Utopia is that he didn't really attempt anything like this again. I mean, he wrote it extensively, but all the, his subsequent writing was, um, you know, controversial theology, um, very much dealing with suppressing uh, people he thought were heretics, uh, Lutherans, um, lots of letters. Um, and I think it's very interesting to, to see how, as his career took off in the late 15-teens and the 1520s, he never really attempts anything like utopia again. And now there might be lots of reasons for that. But I think that fact is significant and perhaps points to someone who was perhaps more involved in day-to-day politics than he would have been in this hotel that you describe in 1516 where he had lots of time 
to write this book. John, hold your response on that. Uh, Gisela, you, you arrived very well briefed indeed because you, you brought a, your copy of Utopia in English and you also brought one in German that you'd read, I think, <laughs> as a, a student or, or certainly you know, in, in, in younger times. And what did you make of that? And has, a bit like John really, has your view of Thomas More's Utopia changed? I think my view has changed in terms of uh, the use of humour in dangerous times. The, the more dangerous it is what you're about to say, the easier it is to say it in a humorous way. Uh, and also in a way which has a greater reception. You kind of hold up the mirror and people start laughing. And at the moment you laugh, you open up a crack. And it, it provides ambiguity, the laughter. And therefore, you may just get somewhere. But can I just come back to something about the, the sort of Romans, the Greeks, and, and the... You know, Pericles' funeral oration tells you that the Athenian who is not prepared to be in public life is a useless Athenian. So that, that battle between withdrawal into private life, particularly when there is oppression from the top, the temptation to say, uh, but it was in, a, in East Germany, people withdrew to the, the allotments. Yeah, the private sphere, because the public sphere was too dangerous. And at a time when, uh, you know, fat monks weren't very popular and this guy called Martin Luther ended up writing some things which, you know, we know the rest. That, that danger, I think to him, it was, it was ambiguity tempered with humour was the only safe way in, he, in which he could say things. Absolutely, and I, I think in one sense we've, we've not, we've occluded the radicalism of Moore's utopia. You know, the core theme that goes from book one to book two isn't just about how to get involved in politics, but it's the critique of private property. Yeah. You know, private property creates sin. There's a long Christian tradition going back to Augustine that says we need private property to regulate our sin. I need to know what's mine and you need to know what's yours and leave it alone. Moore says this pride and ambition to accumulate, the acquisitive man for Moore is unacceptable. And in Utopia, you know, he describes contemporary society as a conspiracy of the rich. You know, it's very contemporary language in one sense. You know, the, the sin of acquisition um, is this serpent from hell that corrupts everything. And what, what Moore wants to argue is if we have a common life, if we have a common commitment to health and welfare, remember this is a description of the best state of the commonwealth, the commonwealth. You know, in one sense, he's a precursor of the NHS. You know, he's saying we need to look after each other. You know, if, if we recognize as humans we can have a sort of perfectibility by not pursuing the acquisition of pointless stuff like gold. You know, what's gold good for? But, I mean, that's a very clear radical prescription. But if you actually look at how he lived his life and the fact that he was the son of a, a very wealthy and highly ambitious lawyer, he himself went into the law, he himself went into the court of Henry VIII, which was not known for its socialistic principles. Um, <laughs> he himself acquired um, wealth, he married a rich widow, he had that beautiful house in Chelsea, which of course is not as expensive then as it is now, but it was still a nice uh, place. You know, th th there's clearly a conflict there between, between some of the ideals that you've described so eloquently and the way he lived his life and the career he pursued. I think that's right, and I think that's one of the real problems for Thomas More. And there's, there's a wonderful bit in the second book where he says one of the regulations that the sort of constitutional architecture of uh, Utopia has is that no representative can discuss things of private concern and benefit 
everything must be done in public. Now that, that would be a wonderful um, thing that we could perhaps use very well today with you know, investments in companies and directorships and, all, and lobbying. Moore is saying, get involved in politics. You, know, you might need to shed your nice house at some point, but actually if you get involved seeking the common good, there will be a better politics. Whereas you know, if he looks around the court of Henry VIII, they were pretty rum crew. <laughs> Well, that, actually, I was looking at, at Gisela meaningfully there, not, not particularly to single Gisela out, but that idea of a, a commonwealth and a common good, can we really read across between the idea of Thomas More's time and utopia to what a modern politician, be it a social democrat in Germany or indeed a Christian democrat in Germany or a conservative or labor politician in a modern society would think of as the common good? You would use different language. Uh, I mean, for example, if you read in there uh, about, you know, everybody, the working hours, you would only do sort of, you know, six, seven hours. And then once you've produced everything, you know, the people in charge would determine whether you'd fill some more potholes or do something else. But of course, the question is always, who are the people in charge who make those decisions? And I think the, the ongoing debate, and particularly in sort of 21st century, where left and right don't really mean anything anymore. It is about the question of the state. When do we think the collective is more effective? When can the collective produce things which the individual can't? And that tension to this day between the individual and the collective uh, is an ongoing battle and will continue to be the ongoing battle. I thought it was a good time to go to the audience and just hear some questions or uh, curious responses, if you could uh, make them that way, to, to what you've heard so far. There are microphones around. Is anyone uh, feeling moved to, to a question? Yes, a gentleman there. Yeah, I think you have to, it's a red mic, and if you hold it about six inches, it'll be nice but not deafening. Uh, when Gisela talked about a politician should be half dreamer and half politician, I wondered if you thought your leader had got the balance right. <laughs> no, that's straight to the point. There you go, Gisela. Easy one. Kick off with. Relevance well, I, to utopia. I, 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 I now follow, follow Mo Molem's advice as to when you ask something to which you don't immediately know the answer. First, laugh, because that buys you time. <laughs> You've done that. And then busk. Um, no, I mean, the, 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 the challenge is he's clearly offering a dream that is incredibly attractive to a large number of people. Uh, but the challenge now is, how do you put this into practice? And it's quite interesting, this, this week's issue of the big issue actually has got utopia at the front. And I, I bought a copy of it, and John Lloyd, the man who gave us the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, amongst other things, uh, does a very interesting piece where he says, utopia in terms of politics means that in the end it kind of never works, because the problem is you keep thinking that others have to change. And the real answer to putting utopia into practice satisfactorily is that you've got to change. And that's today's that kind of really uncomfortable thing, is that we're all getting terribly good at telling other people what to do, but kind of leave the us out. So, you know, whether it's Jeremy Corbyn or John Lloyd or, or me... Um, it's always a bit of both, a bit of tension. I don't want to spoil the fun of discussing contemporary politics, which I promise we're going to do uh, as we go, go through the, the next parts. So, panel, with reference to the text, can you, that question was an interesting one about, you know, how does one then take a contemporary figure and say, are they, you know, are they on the right lines to, to utopia? Are they also on any sort of lines that you recognise from Thomas More? 
I, I th one of the things I was struck rereading the text again, and you, the, the revolution that Corbyn is trying to make in contemporary politics resonated so powerfully with passages in books one and two about poverty and inequality. You know, it's almost as if Thomas Piketty was writing at bits of, of Moore's utopia. There's this wonderful image when Moore says, if you have rich and poor in the same city, you actually have two cities, and the consequences will be destruction and disorder. So I think you know, Moore is, has experienced a turbulent London, presumably, you know, grotty porters and watermen and God knows what else. Um, on the streets of London and wants to address the question of poverty. We don't need to live in a society where there is such extremes of poverty. And that, that you know, we have a minimum wage, I believe, but we don't have a legislated maximum wage yet. But, but I think this attempt to read Utopia, I think it's a much more multi-layered uh, text than, for instance, the Communist Manifesto. I mean, it's not something which is overtly um, arguing unequivocally for a certain political line. I think there's a lot of things going on, and you said something very interesting at the beginning of our discussion, where you said he's asking questions about questions. Mm. Um, and I think it's very difficult rereading the text after 20 years. I mean, I read it as an undergraduate. I had to read it then. But um, you, it's very difficult to sort of say who Moore is. I think that was another mm. remark uh, that you made. And it's clear that, I mean, it's an incredibly, you know, it's an extraordinary thing that he's done in 1516 to come up with a society that is essentially, you know, people live in common. Hmm. Um, I mean, Plato did, the, uh, did something similar in the Republic, but the text of Utopia is, is very, very multi-layered. The two characters, uh, Morris and Hithliday, it's very difficult, uh, even though Morris is called Moore, it's not altogether clear that he is exclusively... Um, representing Thomas More's views, because there's a bit of more in both both of the characters. So it's a much more nuanced and multi-layered text. And actually, we wouldn't be talking about it. It wouldn't be such a great text if it were just an explicit, you know, 80-page or whatever, 150-page. But it's interesting that we're already starting to kind of argue about it. You know, it's inevitably this is going to be the the response, and people will be in the audience will be having their own thoughts about, well, you know, what would I call utopia, and is it the, the, the same now as then? So take us, if you could, John, to the main features of the society of utopia as it's laid out here in, in Moore's work. I mean, can we readily imagine what it would be like from what he tells us? Well, he's actually very specific. It's a republican constitution. Uh, everyone has to work. Uh, everyone has to do agriculture except the scholars. The scholars, you may be relieved to hear, are exempt, but they have to publish. <laughs> but they have to publish or perish, otherwise they're sent back to the fields. People, people, people also have to learn a, a, a trade. Uh, there is, however, a rather familiar I exception to the idea that work is evenly shared, because in Utopia, as well as working in the fields, women have to do childcare and, the ki and, and also ki cooking the utopian kitchens. Same so, as it so, ever so was. Even, so even in, even in Utopia, working women have three jobs. Uh, but, 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 but people are looked pe precisely because uh, everything is held in common. It's possible uh, in Moore's imagination to have what's I I equivalent to an NHS with you know, uh, no resourcing problems, unlimited medical care, the best possible people, a wonderful education system. 
Uh, Moore, of course, justifies, or seems to justify, the utopians justify slavery, but slavery is not quite what you expect. Uh, it's basically criminals who are being rehabilitated by being given the jobs of the heavy lifting, or else people from other societies think utopia is such a marvelous place, they're happy to be there as slaves and basically, you know, to work for the, for, for work, work for the ut- ut- utopians. Uh, war is covered. Actually, it's, it's on the subject of war that, that, that Moore is actually most like Machiavelli because uh, y- y- you use mercenaries. You don't fight yourself. You don't endanger your own citizens. You use fraud and trickery, you know, whatever you can to defeat your e- enemy. If the worst comes to the worst, uh, you, you will engage in, 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 in battle. War is justified chiefly on defensive grounds. Uh, but, of course, it, to put it into a modern context, say a neighboring society was spoiling the environment, that would be a reason to intervene. Uh, 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 also, to intervene, uh, to essentially dethrone a tyranny would be for, would be for the utopians uh, a just war. So it's quite feasible that in utopia we would still have invaded Iraq, uh, or at least that could have been, could have, could have been justified. Uh, religion, of course, is, I believe, absolutely central to this, because... Uh, although it's polytheist, uh, most people, it seems, believe in one divinity called, uh, called, called Mithras. Uh, there are two beliefs, though, that you need to have, because uh, if you don't have them, you're ostracized. You're not constructively punished, but you're not allowed to hold public office. You're essentially sent off to talk to priests and magistrates. You have to believe in the immortality of the soul. You have to believe that um, essentially the world is not governed by blind chance, but by divine providence. You have to believe, therefore, by inference in an afterlife, because if you didn't believe in an afterlife with the possibility of felicity everlasting, you wouldn't behave on earth, because there would be no reason to do so. You would just be a a, a hedonist. And what this leads you into the view is that actually, for, for Thomas more absolutely centrally, and this fits with what was said about his emphasis later on heresy and, and, and religion and, and, and his defense of the Catholic Church against the, 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 so that, the demands that of Protestant. Essentially, essentially it, isn't, it, isn't, it isn't just enough to live in accordance with reason or nature. You also need divine revelation. For the perfect society, you need both reason and revelation. But there's one last thing just before um, we move on. There's one thing, though, that's central to all of this that I think more truly did believe in and that which is which marks him out from say Thomas Cromwell or even his own brother-in-law John Restall or many many other people in 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 Tudor England is that he really does believe in this idea of the best society is one which is governed by wise men it's quite different this is not economic individualism this is not the exercise of the sovereign will of of citizens this is not say you know as in Machiavelli an armed militia defending the 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 liberty, liberty of the state I'm so pleased you mentioned Machiavelli again because that was exactly what I, I wanted to put there. Uh, to, to Justin, uh, first of all, another book that grapples with the question of power and how to manage it, how to wield it most effectively, is of course Machiavelli's The Prince. It's published three years before Utopia in 1513 and often cited Justin as the opposite of a utopian text. How do you assess the two in relation to each other? I think when... Uh when we think about Machiavelli and Moore together, we, we are in very different worlds, but in similar projects in the sense that Machiavelli, like Moore, returns to Roman antiquity. You know, the, the Prince is a pastiche, it's a humorous book, he's playing games, as Quentin Skinner has shown, he's inverting the traditional advice book for princes. You know, if the Prince is meant to be the core of moral value in a community, then he needs to be courteous, courageous, beneficent, 
keep his promises. Well, Machiavelli says, no, that's rubbish. You need to treat politics by understanding men as they are, not as they would be. And men are essentially nasty, brutish, violent human beings. So a prince, if they're going to be successful, needs to use everything. Lie to the people. As long as they think you're good, it doesn't matter. Can of I course, sorry, he, he also it? wrote the discourses, sure. which is very much more about a collective virtue that protects nationhood and the family. But I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in, in this. I mean, this is the first panel, the first I've ever heard that Utopia is a very serious book, whereas The Prince is a very humorous book. And it's usually the other way around. Certainly that was the way I was taught. But it's an interesting an interesting perception. I mean, the one thing I remember about The, Mag the Prince is that it wasn't actually published. That's right. I mean, I know it was written in 1513, but it had a kind of secret circulation. It wasn't something which, like a modern book, is published and then you get reviews in the Sunday Times and all the rest of it, and maybe a couple of other papers if you're lucky. I mean, it wasn't that sort of text. So I think to try and put them together, you know, we've got to bear in mind that one was published for a, an audience, a, a highly intellectual written audience, and the other was a, a more secret book. Yeah, I want to ask you both as politicians, yeah. if I, I could, do you see them as, in a sense, opposite or competing views? Gisela? Oh, but I think The Prince is a book which, to this day, as a politician, you ought to have on your bedside and keep <laughs> dipping in you and read out. read it regularly. No, <laughs> uh, because... To, be, because because it treats men as they are. Right. So what the people want is they don't want to be suppressed. A good ruler you recognize by someone who surrounds themselves by people who are better than they are. Uh, kindness is a dished out in small portions and over a long period. Unkindness is in one swift fell swoop so they can forget about it quickly. Uh, you know, if you invade another country that is full of diverse people who don't speak the same language, you will have more problems than when you do the ones which are united. I mean, to this day, The Prince is a book you ought to go back and either agree or disagree with, whereas Moore's Utopia, which also took a long time before it actually got the, was, the wider yeah, administration. It's a different pu publication. It, yeah, it kind of, it makes you think, but it's not the kind of working manual I think The Prince is to this day. You're a proud Machiavellian. <laughs> absolutely. I think Gisela's, I mean, just as a point of fact, I think Gisela, Gisela's absolutely right. I'm not sure whether our current leaders read The Prince, but you sometimes get the impression from what they do that that... That it would do them good, I think. And, and certainly, I mean, I'm of an age where, and I'm sure there'll be people in the audience who you know, may seek careers in financial services, in banks, and it was notorious in the 80s and 90s. I mean, traders used to read The Prince. Um, you know, it, was, it had that sort of very, very practical, very, very kind of knowing uh, side to it. And I think Utopia, quite deliberately, is something else. He's, he's not trying to give you a, a manual of how to get to the top or how to knife your opposition. I think it's a much broader, sort of more sympathetic book in that way. And, and we shouldn't forget that Machiavelli wrote, you know, it's a job application mm. to work sure. for the Medici. It's, it's, it's a very practical handbook. Employ me, who Peter Mandelson perhaps may have read it a few times, and, and you'll get where you need to get. But do you think, John, that this question of managing power, which you could feel almost like the balance, and I don't know about the, the, the audience, please, we were going to come back to you for questions very shortly, but you can almost feel people going, oh, yes, well, Machiavelli is the practical guy, and this Thomas More utopia, it's all very interesting, but it's a, a bit of a mixture of being playful and elevated. Could you manage power? based on Moore's utopia? This is the great question, of course. How do, this, is the, this is the challenge that the Roman Republicans had faced. How do you speak to, to, to power? Uh, of course, what, was, what 
it, it, it's inconceivable that Thomas More had heard of um, Machiavelli's uh, Prince. It's not inconceivable that Thomas Cromwell had, had heard of it for, for, ver for various reasons. He may have seen it in manuscript uh, in the 1530s. He certainly had a copy of it by about 1530-39. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that what was most threatening to Thomas More in Machiavelli is the passage on, uh, in Machiavelli on the king's ministers and counsellors. Because for Machiavelli, uh, the, the prince chooses his own counsellors. They advise him only insofar as he will be advised. He's free to reject their advice. Uh, uh, in fact, Machiavelli goes further, almost saying, basically, if you're going to be an advisor to princes, you have to do exactly what they say, otherwise they'll, you're, you'll get your head cut off, which, of course, is what Hith the Day also says in... And which happens the more. Yeah. Of course, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly, what happened, exactly what happened to Thomas More. But for, Tom, for Thomas More, the essence, the, essence, the essence of Thomas More's approach to the conceptual nature of how to deal with power, uh, and, of course, remember that the writers that he had been primarily concerned with, in particularly Plato and to a lesser extent Aristotle, uh, had of course um, not quite had to confront I mean in, in ancient Greek society you didn't have to confront the, the, the problem of, of, of monarchy as such, you had to confront the problem of tyranny, but, 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 but not of monarchy in real life, unless you were Plato and went off to try and cancel Dionysius of Syracuse, which came to a very sticky, came to a very sticky end, he found out what princes were really like. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that for Thomas More the essence of how you do this is to have wise counsellors who through, through, their elo through their sheer eloquence, uh, through their skills of persuasion, through their commitment to changing the world for the better as an active citizen. This is where the Ciceronian bit really comes into play. That is the essence of how he thought he could do it, but the trouble was he was dealing with Henry VIII. Uh, as, a, as the young Henry, you'd get away with it. Once Henry had met Anne Boleyn and wanted that divorce and became a mature ruler you know, who only had to say, well, um, for everyone to know that there was no brooking him, there's no contradicting him. Then it was a whole different episode of the Tudors. a completely different element. He's, but there's still a tension, to, if you look at today's politics, that, that uh, utopian wise men, which is a very teleological, continental European view of doing politics, there is such a thing as a right answer. And as long as you talk about it long enough, sit in a horseshoe... Uh, are educated, always men, remember, uh, <laughs> you will find the right answer. The, the kind of Anglo-Saxon seafaring view of the world is you can't control the waves. The best thing you can do is ride them. So the best thing you can do at any given situation, have, you know, like in the House of Commons, adversarial, you make a case. Who makes the best case in this given exactly. situation? And that's the pragmatism. And that tension to this very day is here between mainland Europe and the Anglo-Saxons. Can I... Very quick one. Yeah, I think that was a brilliant. And also, if you look at the way British politics has evolved since more, he'd be horrified if he saw the modern um, House of Commons. And it's completely different, the structure of British politics, to one which is very much monarchical and court-based. Let's take some questions on that. A bit of food for thought there. Um, yes, we'll start with the gentleman up there, the microphone coming to you. Tell us who you are, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, Two things. Just one very quick comment about uh, Machiavelli. I mean, you know, to, to hear this from a Labour politician is always quite enlightening, the kind of, yes, I love Machiavelli line. He wrote this alongside the discourses, and if you read only one and not the other, you get a very kind of lopsided view of Machiavelli. Um, so, so that, but the, so I, um, it, it, but what I really want... Are you suggesting Labour politicians in particular should read more of the discourses or indeed, less of the other indeed. one? Indeed. Today they should, and I think, thank you for um, 
you know, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, that he does do that. Um, but about um, the, the utopia bit, um, getting real about utopia, we, we fall into this old line that utopia is kind of so pragmatic and pragmatism is really what we're aiming for. Again, this is something I sort of picked out in the discussion. Could utopia be a pragmatic strategy? Okay. Could utopia be a pragmatic strategy? Uh, I'll let Gisela think about whether Labour politicians should read even more Machiavelli. And Justin, is that a, a fair comment, the second I, one? I think that's a very useful comment. And you know, go, going back to reading more and reading Plato, these people still speak to us because they have an integrity. They're optimistic about the potential for human perfectibility. You know, ca can we use our minds to think of a world in which there isn't as much poverty and violence as there is now. You know, we're in the 21st century and, and there are hundreds of thousands of people being starved to death. And, and the best the West can do at the moment is drop bombs on them. Now that, that seems to me to be absolutely unacceptable. If, if we know what it is to be human, we need to design a politics, and this is what Moore says to me, we need to design a politics that enables us to think creatively about how to address those issues. It might be really complicated. We might have to compromise on our religious beliefs or you know, tax people a little bit more or tax people a little bit less. Who knows? But I think if we don't at least try to answer those questions, politics is a pointless waste of time. Gisela. But then the challenge is, why if this was first raised 500 years ago, and then, you know, Erasmus never believed in the, in the just war, so, you know, these tensions were there. Why in those intervening 500 years, we have not come up with the answer? That should tell you something about the tension. That are coming back to, you know, what is wrong with Labour politicians doing a little bit more work on how to use power. It comes back to my earlier observation of that if you're a politician, then yes, you should dream, but you also have a responsibility to try and put that dream into practice, and that requires you to understand power. I think the Tories, by and large, if there's one thing they do understand, is to use power and the pursuit of power, whereas Labour politicians tend to be just that little bit more squeamish, but the responsibility is to not just talk about things, but actually do them. And if you want to do them, you need to understand but, power. But the understanding of power, I mean, more fundamentally than the understanding of power, how do you attain, how do you use power? You understand power by understanding people. Yeah. And that's what you said about Machiavelli. You understand you know, how you see human nature. And yes, you can believe in the perfectibility of man, but you've also got to have a sort of strategy in which you get to that perfect state, and you have to deal with people as they are often. And they're not perfect. Let's take another question, if we could. Yes, I can see a hand. Sorry, I can now see who it's attached to. It's a lady in a pink jumper. Uh, hi. Um, not really a question, maybe, but something that struck me in, in the last part of the debate. We're talking a lot about politics in terms of wielding power and managing power and dealing with people rather than actually serving people, which is what it was... I would assume, uh, made for. So any comments on that? I'm going to throw that one to, to, to John because I, that's a very interesting question, isn't it? It runs throughout the whole work. Is who's telling who to do, who is serving who? Exactly. I, I think with, with Thomas More, we have to face the fact that he was quite authoritarian. It's almost like, you know, as with Rousseau, you, you have to be forced to be free. 
you know, by the structures of society uh, and, and, and by the moral authority of these, these wise men. I think much more conceptually, much more broadly, utopia as a practical, uh, if you like, um, recipe for uh, social improvement um, depends on us being willing to change ourselves. Uh, because that's the only way we can uproot pride and greed, you know, from society as a whole. It's not really by, you know, the sort of specific measures that more advocates in utopia, which wouldn't work in terms of economics anyway. The question is, do they work in terms of human psychology? Uh, and broadly speaking, our experience, you know, I mean, you know, over a thousand years and more, is that basically it doesn't work in terms of human psychology because, in fact, people like to accumulate property. And, of course, this is where Justin's uh, point is, is, is so strong that, I mean, if you look at actually more from a distance and in this context, he looks like at best a champagne socialist. You know, at worst, somebody, you know, who basically made himself a very large fortune and built himself a very comfortable life and, and built up the most marvellous art collection. I mean, Moore was probably the leading art connoisseur, uh, perhaps apart from Cardinal Woolsey in this period, with a, collection, with a collection to match. So, you know, what does one say to that? The only thing I would say is that this book it is an incredibly timeless book. You, you reread this book... I in preparation for this event, I reread it. It, it. it comes across every time you reread it like a Shakespeare play, as, as totally fresh. It is inspirational. Mm. Uh, uh, what more can one say? Gisela, that theme of who is the, the master and who is the servant in the political relationship and how much people want to be led and how much they lead political opinion. I mean, you must face this all the time. Mm. I was go back to T.S. Eliot, you know, man cannot take much of reality. Uh, and, and it's the, the, the politician is the, how much reality can they take? And you, you go to the American uh, elections at the moment, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton's disadvantage is the fact that she's so experienced that she gives people a sense of what is possible and what isn't. And a lot of people prefer Sanders because he does much more of the dreaming. But, but come back to, I sometimes think currently we as MPs, our role uh, of, you know, the servant, uh, I always think our, our role is we are the mediator of between tyranny and mob rule. And our role is to, to negotiate that role of representing bring together, make the compromises, say for those 70,000, 80,000 who we represent, what is that best compromise? Because if you're merely a servant, then you just respond to what 38 degrees sends you an email book, well, in which case, you know, we don't need you. Tyranny and mob rule and the enlightened, democratic, possibly utopia-reading politician in the middle, is that, that where you would I, situate I think, yourself in the day I job? Think, I think this is fascinating, but I think one thing that I would stress is the fact that the structure, and I mentioned this earlier, the structure of politics in Moore's time and how you got on and how you got on with Henry VIII. There, was, there are similarities to modern political life. Is that like dealing with David Cameron on a bad day then? Well, perhaps the Chancellor, I'm not sure. But I, well, one, the reshuffle. Uh, <laughs> the reshuffle is probably the period. But, yeah, once we like, draw a line, I mean, at the end of the day, the reason I'm there is because I got elected and I, well, I won a party primary and I got elected and I represent a constituency. Now, the, the, the nature of representation and the, na the function of the House of Commons couldn't be more different than in Moore's time. I mean, in Moore's time, the House of Commons was essentially entirely subservient to Henry VIII. I mean, the idea that Henry VIII would listen and, and, and uh, be a constitutional monarch would, would be unthinkable. Um, and, 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 I mean, of course, he listened to the House of Commons, but he didn't really, wasn't governed by them. 
Well, I agree with you that Henry thought that Parliament was accountable to him, not he, he to pay Parliament. Right. Uh, uh, I mean, there was opposition to the, uh, some aspects of the break with, break with Rome and, the, and, mm. and Henry's uh, Reformation legislation. But, but I'll just give you one example. Uh, in the case of the, um, a particular act of, 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 of 1532, um, which was designed to stop payments by the clergy and the bishops to Rome and divert them to the, to, 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 to the crown. When this was resisted, Henry marched into the House of Lords and said, anyone who disagrees with me, stand up. That was that was. That well, was that's his, more Saddam Hussein. That's probably did the trick. You see, you see, you see, you see. Henry Henry was very clever because what he did was he 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 got whole swathes of the if the, the landowning um, members of society to swear an oath to be his servants, which which didn't mean very much, uh, but conceptually it meant that in Parliament they couldn't vote against him. And so he effectively had a whipping system lined up in the House of Commons, and he could, he could intimidate the peers. Client state, as, as we'd now call it. But just I wanted to come back to this word utopia. It's, it's entered the language, a lot of people use it without being aware of its, its origins. How do you think the book has... Does it still matter as a book? I think it does, and the the sort of pejorative meaning of of utopia uh, is not quite so prevalent. I I can remember being uh, reprimanded by my tutor at university for inventing a word, dystopia, which of course I'd found in the OED. It was his own limitation rather than mine um, and we get lots and you of remembered that I do yes yes I'll tell you his name soon no <laughs> we've still got the essay um, what one can imagine lots of fictive representations of dystopia especially in, in Hollywood you know we, we, we love the idea of the nasty um, utopia and, and I think there's a lot of slack thinking about the, the benefits of a utopia where, where the principles are ones that we would subscribe to and you know the dystopic state that controls everything and th- th- there's a lot of it's a lot of nonsense written about Moore that you know he's the founder of totalitarianism Karl Popper accused mm. Plato as well of the same sort of thing but I th- think Gisela said earlier that there is a view that to every problem there is a right and best answer I mean, Plato would say, if you've got a complicated mathematical problem, you can resolve it. You know, even Fermat's theorem has been resolved. But I, I think we sometimes occlude the Republican tradition. Being a Republican is not simply about not liking kings. Being a Republican is about creating an architecture, a political architecture, a set of institutions, whether it's Machiavelli in the discourses or Rousseau um, in, in the social contract, creating an architecture that allows everyone to be consensually involved in their day-to-day politics. The tragedy of Western Europe is that Locke won the day. So we, we have a sort of nominal consensualism that says, oh, I give my consent every year. Rousseau sniggered once every seven years you give your consent and what are at the core of Locke's values the protection of lives liberties and furniture but I brilliant think, I think in this discussion of property we, I mean sorry of utopia 
We seem to have forgotten that a lot of people in the, in the intervening 500 years have tried utopias. Mm -hmm. I mean, the French Revolution, yep. uh, the, the, the Paris Communards, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, <laughs> Mao, the Nazis. I mean, this idea of utopia, it's not for want of trying. It's not as if for 500 years mm -hmm. no one has tried to, to bring a utopia to earth. I mean, you and could it, argue it seems to have as many cases for it powerfully, uh, uh, sorry, against it as for it, Justin. In, in what sense can we blame more for the Nazis? No, I'm, not, I'm not blaming him. I'm just saying that, you know, we've, we've got this book, which is very important. We've yeah. got this concept of utopia. And lots of people are saying, why can't we have more of utopia? Why can't we aspire? And I think that's very laudable. But I, what I am pointing out is that in the last 500 years, a lot of people have yeah. wanted to create utopias, yeah, they, which it, turned out not so well. For yeah, there's a wonderful um, collection edited by Alberto Managuel on imaginary places that's about three inches thick of all of the different sorts Absolutely. of utopian experiments. And, and maybe that's because we're just using the word rather than trying to recover what Thomas More was but, up to. But my point is that people have actually, in real life, actively tried to bring that about. Mm. Gisela, I mean, just listening to that as a German-born mm -hmm. politician, I mean, the German society, of course, been through you know, two utopian experiments within the last century. Does that change your view, or indeed the, you know, the view of German politicians and German society, to the idea of utopia, to the kind of discussion we're having here? I, I would thought in the last century, uh, you know, the Germans kind of gave, tried to give up dreaming as a, as, as, as a pretty bad idea because it didn't have a good end. However... Uh, there, there then, of course, was the, the one thing which we never thought would happen because it was so utopian. It was so not going to happen. And, you know, that was the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, you know, I was that generation that thought that was the one thing that would never happen, and it did. And that brings me to, to the real point when, when you were talking about there's a right answer. You know, there may be a right answer to geometry, and there may be a right answer to gravitational waves. There isn't a right answer to human relationships. Uh, if you just look at the last 20, 30 years in terms of same-sex partnerships, all those kind of acceptance, we have really fundamentally changed. And there is a utopian thinking, like, you know, rules is social justice. You know, you, you have models which are not immediately off this world, where you try and find a fairer way. But it's not like mathematics and geometry. The answer will change with the time and the environment, and therefore we have to keep challenging it. John, do you, as a historian, warm to this discussion about uh, we've tried utopias, they haven't worked, are we talking about the same thing? Or do you think we're just trying to do too much with a book, however fascinating, however wide-ranging? I don't think Thomas More actually wanted to set about constructively fashioning a completely fresh society in a, in a utopian mode, because for starters, utopia is really a word that he invented. I mean, utopia, no place. And when he wrote to Erasmus saying, you know, I'm sending you the text of my book, uh, because Erasmus, of course, got it published. More didn't get it published. Erasmus arranged for its publication on, on the continent. He called the book Nusquam, Nowhere. Uh, I, uh, the, 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 and do you the, think the, it's just to press you? Do you think it's best left like that? Do you think we stra have a desire to kind of retrofit ideas to utopia? It's best left like that because Moore's ultimate purpose is the transformation within ourselves, within our mind, within our values, mm -hmm. so that we, we, we come to believe in justice and equality. Essentially, in, he would like us to think of, of totally on, 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 on the Greek model. 
Uh, where I would part company with this is, is, is Moore's authoritarianism. But of course, as, you know, as, as Gisela says, I mean, this is a very much more of a continental view. And of course, remember, you know, this is, you know, this is the, I mean, Moore at that time lived in a Europe that had the Schengen Agreement. You know, without the Schengen Agreement, you just, you just went to and fro. It was, the, it was the Reformation. It was the break with Rome that, you know, passports came in in a significant way and, you know, the king controlled who could come and, come and go. Uh, I suppose it's just too cheap to ask what he'd have made of a possible Brexit, but is there any comparison, seeing as you mentioned Schengen and Europe? I'm perfectly happy to, Im- to imagine that, that, that if Thomas More was here today, he would be out there campaigning for, for Britain to stay in the EU. Uh, his, value, his values would be, it would be the values of, if shall we say, a Brussels intelligentsia, which had found a way, you know, to, in, uh, according to you know, the moral values which they thought to be the best and the best people you know, would, would, were doing it, to actually... You know, con- con- so he'd have to, been an inner to your mind. To make a, a, a new Europe, yeah. Yes, yes, there's a, you, a prominent centre-left Eurosceptic. <laughs> do, you, do you claim Thomas More for your side or no idea what he'd have done? I no more would want to claim Thomas More, nor Margaret Thatcher, nor any else who isn't there. alive anymore. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think this is this is this is kind of it, it's actually pointless because ever which way we, we, we want to make the case, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't answer. But come back to, to Thomas More. I had an 11-year-old uh, going around the House of Commons today, and I said I was going to do this tonight. And she said, oh, we, we did this at school. So I said, and what did you make of it? She said, well, we actually weren't terribly impressed by the childcare arrangements. Uh, and we thought with the duty for everyone to work, what about the disabled? And it ha- was a very interesting debate. So he ha- still has a relevance by starting to make us think, to have opinions, and to react against it. And the fact that, you know, 500 years on, you go into a bookshop and you can buy several editions of that book means it goes on speaking to us. Let's take some more questions if we have a, a couple. In fact, we might take two at once just so we can get some... Div- yes, gentlemen there, um, gunning for you just there. Thank you very much. And then one from the other side in a second. I wonder whether uh, Utopia uh, shouldn't make us ask where we are going to as humanity... Um, In the 20th century, two negative images of societies were developed uh, by two British writers. I think it's a brave new world as a negative image, and Orwell, of course. Here, um, Moore presents us with a positive image, right? Shouldn't we ask where actually are we going or should we be going as humanity? I mean, if Moore said sheep eat men, wouldn't he say today computer eat men? Very, very nice, nice thought to ponder there. Let's take a question from the other side as well. Yeah, whoever's got the, the sort of will to power. Yeah. <laughs> um, Gisela, I was quite interested in how you summarize the broad differences in the continental and the Anglo approach to politics. I was wondering whether you could go into um, where that difference comes from and why that still applies today. Quick round panel. I, th- I would just take either of these yeah. two questions that appeals to you. Gisela. I mean, it, it, it does have its, its, its roots, I think, in uh, theology and 
you know, theological, but also it's much, much wider, just, just looking at you. Talk to a military uh, an analyst who's by training a neurologist, and he's currently doing a study on the way Western, Iranian, and Chinese uh, respond to risk and the future. And he thought it was quite extraordinary that if you took a Western model and you give someone from the West a graph which goes upwards, we argue about by how much it goes up was the angle, because we have this in-bed assumption that things will get better. And what we argue about is by how much they get better. And if it goes wrong, we kind of say, well, who's fouled up? You know, whose model, which model isn't working? If you do the equivalent to the Chinese, they go, well, if it goes up, it's got to come down. I mean, it's logic, isn't it? You know, this... So, so what I'm expressing is a kind of very fundamental view which over the last thousand years has developed, but the seafaring nations, I think, because of their experience, uh, have taken a different approach to decision-making. John, either response to either of those. Well, uh, and the gentleman over raised the point about you know, the economic problems caused by, in the time by enclosures, essentially, for, for sheep runs, but that's part of a, essentially a conversation in Cardinal Morton's household, and of course Cardinal Morton, who'd been one of Henry VII's chief ministers early in the reign, was actually the closest thing in Thomas More's imagination to a philosopher prince. This was the guy you know, who had squared the circle, you know, particularly in, in Richard III's reign. We won't go precisely there now. But the point of, the, but the, point of the, the, the conversation is that it then moves through a discussion of crime and, and essentially how to punish thieves. You know, is perhaps you know, essentially, um, uh, rather than having retributive uh, justice, is it not better actually to have restorative justice? Uh, and, of course, Hitler Day won't listen because he thinks that no one in power is going to do anything that's sensible. But, of course, he ignores the fact that, that, that Morton actually picks up on this and actually says, well, I'm willing to consider this and put it into, it, 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 into practice. So this is essentially reinforcing Moore's view that the wise counsellor is actually able to make a big difference in practice in the, in, in, in the polity. And just to th throw in, in, in response to something actually that Justin said, said, said earlier, uh, actually Moore in his career did do certain things that actually he recommended in Utopia. For example, he, uh, he was behind uh, a law passed in Parliament in 1529, which did in fact require thieves to restore property that, that had been stolen to the people it had been taken from. Uh, and all that stuff about um, how you manage grain supplies in, 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 in times of scarcity, meat supplies in times of scarcity, you know, so that it's not hoarded by the rich. In fact, he got Cardinal Wolsey to um, implement those measures while Wolsey was uh, Henry's chief minister. And there's an absolutely extraordinary list uh, of all the, um, of all the, you know, the, the, the butchers uh, who are essentially, you know, overcharging, hoarding meat, and all the rest of it. And, and, and this list, you know, it's not in Thomas More's handwriting, but every single name on that list is from an area that he knew personally. Justin. I, I love the question over here. And in, in one sense, I think you know, More's utopia is a starting point for a conversation. And what, what I would like to think and hope is that you know, current political leaders can write their own fabulous fables around the sort of politics they want to create. Because if, if they can construct something, let's say 15,000 words, that is as dense and as elusive as Moore's utopia to represent what they want their politics to be, a damn sight more people would read it 
than the tedious sort of managerial manifestos that we see. You don't think you've set the barrier a bit high there, 15,000 words? That's a very academic yeah. view of, of, of a politi- <laughs> politician. That's only a, li- that's only a little pamphlet. Well, I've written books that are longer yeah. than that. But yes, I mean, I think it's unlikely. I, I thought your question, the question was, was an excellent one. Mm. And the two books you mentioned, Brave New World and 1984, I mean, they're both from sort of, I suppose, Brave New World's early 30s, and uh, 1984 was 1948, 49, published. And I think that those dates show the kind of disillusion, the, uh, the pessimism, uh, and the difficulties that, you know, international order was facing. And I think the problem we have now is that the world hasn't got any brighter in many ways than, it, than was the case in the 30s and 40s. I mean, we've got you know, horrible things that are happening. And in that sort of environment, the, the imagination that is required to come up with a, a more positive utopia, I think is very challenging. And people, that's why Hollywood, you know, thrives on dystopian, um, you know, movies and dystopian concepts. Any other questions? Yes, the gentleman there, be very patient. There you go. Thank you. Um, yeah, I find it slightly depressing, the cynicism, um, particularly from the politicians about human nature and private property and just politics being like a pragmatic realist battle because it doesn't really inspire the public and I think in politics people have been more tempted by the extremes you know of um, in American politics and British politics at the moment but uh, what I really want to say is you know for, for early mod for early thinkers this could be a utopia what, what we've currently achieved in our society now. Mm. And, and we're limited by um, historical relative, rel- relativity because this debate in the future, you know, we might be having another debate on what utopia is. So I, but I, 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 I very much like, and I'd like just a couple of people on the panel to pick up the ideas we haven't had so far, is that actually are we living in a kind of utopia? Are there... Uh, strains in our society developments you know we've dealt a lot on the downsides but uh, I don't know I'm looking meaningfully at John but anyone can come in off the back of it you know who do we think that this society actually does have anything in common with utopia we'll take one more question as well while you ponder that we've got the mic down here at the moment let's do that one just a short one I think we need philosophers in the parliament because they can't make compromises and politicians compromise all the time all right well ooh uh, Gisela You know, I get these emails which say, you don't listen to me, you don't represent me. And I go back and say, no, you've just said you disagree with me, so let's have a debate. You know, if if you've got an electorate or a voter of 70,000, you know, what what do you do? Do you, you know, if if, if all I do is an opinion poll on every subject, and, you know, it goes back to saying, I'm elected for my judgment, and then... You will, but but I, I just want to come back on, on, on something which she said, the, 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 the utopia. I'm sometimes reminded that I came to this country 43 years ago. I came here during the three-day week. The television sets were black and white. Uh, the, the, the electricity was only on for three days a week because, you know, the, the country ran out of, 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 of power. Salami was deemed exotic. You know, you, you didn't have duvets. You had Brentford Nylon, which kind of came in pink, yellow, and light blue, which were crinkly in the dark. You know, uh, has life really got that much worse in the last 43 years? Well, in the 43 years I've been here, it has actually always, as they would have said in 1997, things only got better. 
you know, it may well, not be very good now, but don't be so gloomy. I, I totally, um, <laughs> with respect to the gentleman over there, I, I completely share your view in terms of being an MP, because the, the number of emails I get saying, if you don't do precisely what I say, in so many, not in so many words, I will never vote for you again, um, you know, completely ignores the fact that there are 69 or 70,000 other electors that I have to represent. Um, and, and that's, in a way, the core to your problem. I mean, we're always compromising. I've got 70,000 highly articulate electors who have views on all sorts of subjects. And I am juggling these issues all the time. I've got my own principles, obviously. I mean, some politicians maybe don't. I don't know. But, but I've got them. But I have, to, I have to negotiate the fact that I'm also a representative. And that's why we seem sort of perhaps more slippery than we, I would like to think we really are. Justin. Um, I'm going to pipe up for Thomas More because if you look in book two of Utopia, people get elected for a year and they get elected by the heads of households of 30 families. Now, we have how many MPs today? 550? 650 with a population of 60 million. In the 17th, 16th century, we had about 500 MPs for a population of just over 3 million. Was there more representation there than there is now? I think so. I don't think so. There weren't. Any, there, I mean, there were barely competitive elections. Um, but it sounds like a lawyer jerger to me, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, I mean, essentially, you didn't have local government, you didn't have all kinds of structures. Oh, but you did. You it did. Had, Ev every, anyway. It was a commonwealth. So most of the constables, most of the people giving welfare, were elected out of the local community. Mark Goldie's shown that you know, some, something like. 60% of people who held office were from the local communities. This was neighbours governing neighbours. But it was a highly hierarchical society. I mean, if you look at a seat like um, one of the Cornwall seats, you had mm. one family represent from between 1447 and uh, 1945. Mm. They, they represented Cornwall, this seat in Cornwall, more or less continuously for 500 years. And did um, a damn good job. Well, if you want to go back to a feudal... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I was saying, there wasn't have. much movement of the swing there was, there was, a, there was a feudal landed society. John, yes, I, I think, I think, come I in, in on this. I think in Henry VIII's reign, it was parliamentary selection, yes. you know, but <laughs> rather, rather than parliamentary election. Although, I mean, by, by the 1590s, the idea of representation was coming into play. Now, I'd just like to respond to the, to the question, question from, from, from over there. I mean, if you look at, if you, if you look at say, you know, the UK... Uh, or, 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 or Europe, especially especially Northern and Central Europe. Yes, things have only got better. If you look at the Middle East, things look rather different. Uh, and, I mean, on, 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 a, on a global basis, uh, um, I think Moore would be hugely depressed, but he would be depressed... Thomas More would be depressed because of the, 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 the paramount importance now of, of religious con controversy. Mm. Uh, of course, in 1516, when he, when, he was, when he was publishing Utopia, the Reformation was still to come. Brilliant. And just to, just to follow up on that very, very quickly, of course, in More's Utopia, women could be priests. That is, that, 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 that is true, that is true, but very few. And they were usually elderly widows. Yeah, that's right. That's and, right. and there were some rather weird ways of how they went about getting married. Let's not go into that, but it was right yeah, strange. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I could see the female priests being the, the, the subject that John and Justin could be found in the pub in three hours' time uh, arguing about the, the precise arrangements for that. You're listening to Free Thinking on Radio 3. I'm Anne McElroy, and tonight I'm at the London School of Economics where Utopia is on the agenda. That's all we've got time for tonight. Thanks to all my guests, 
Gisela Stewart, John Guy, Kwasi Kwarteng and Justin Champion. And to our audience here at the London School of Economics.